Hey there. Welcome to February. Did you see your shadow and scurry back into your den? Or did you venture out into the cold to gather supplies? Either way, I'm glad you joined us for this month's collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythm of the seasons. This month, we're exploring how to begin. In honor of Valentine's Day, I've got a Kurt Vonnegut short story of a love triangle where one of the lovers is not a human. Double Batch Daddy honors the bleak midwinter in song. I'm very excited to begin a new feature called The Seasons of Life, where we ask a collection of basic questions to a group of folks who are roughly the same age. This month, we start with kindergartners, the ones at the beginning of their life journey. The Ukulele Orchestra of the Western Hemisphere is here to perform Knee Play Number no. 5 from Philip Glass's opera Einstein on the Beach. And later, we'll follow Punxsutawney Phil deep into his burrow and across the ages to explore whether it's time to venture forth or head back to bed. So, here we are. Cold enough for you? If you were unfortunate enough to be stuck at the top of Mount Washington in New Hampshire last week, you'd have experienced the coldest temperature ever recorded in the U.S., 108 degrees below zero. Let's pause to consider that for a second. 108 below zero is 140 degrees below 32 degrees, which is freezing. When I think about how hot 108 is and that it's only 76 degrees above freezing, the ability to comprehend that level of cold is simply mind-boggling. I guess that's why I live in sunny Southern California, where sunrise came at 640 this morning and it'll set at 534 this afternoon. The days may be stretching out, but there's still a long way to go. I have to admit it. I have issues with February. Despite the presidential holidays, the chocolate-coated sentimentality of Valentine's Day, the reporting of pitchers and catchers to spring training, and the historically harrowing and culturally uplifting history of blacks in America, I always find myself in a funk in February. It's tough to get anything going. I almost always catch a cold. In college, it was nearly impossible to get me out of bed. I met a bartender in Cleveland once who warned me to get out of town before February started. It's the time of year when you wonder if you stocked up enough food to make it through. It's when you watch the wood you chopped and stacked back in November begin to dwindle. The candlelight of our winter celebrations are all well behind us now, and we feel the darkness seeping into our bones with the relentless cold. It's all broccoli, Brussels sprouts, and cabbage in February, and potatoes. Lots and lots of potatoes. Thank goodness for oranges, lemons, and limes. We need a little cheery color this time of year, not to mention the vitamin C. February feels to me like a month to be endured rather than enjoyed. But in the face of that, I'll stuff a chicken with lemons and onions, pop it in the oven with a few potatoes, crack open a nice bottle of red, light a candle or 20, spin Nat King coal on the turntable, and draw close to the people I love. I can't think of any better way to pass through the bleak midwinter. Bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow. Long, long 
I started many of these shows with the phrase, if the year were a day, and we used that idea to track the seasons as they rose from darkness, grew brighter, then dimmer, and ultimately settled back into the dark from which a new year arose. This season, I thought we'd look at the year as a lifetime. To that end, I developed a simple little questionnaire. What's on your mind? What's your favorite meal? What makes you happy, sad, angry, and afraid? What's your best memory, and what do you hope for the future? Throughout the year, I'm going to pose these questions to people at various stages of life. High schoolers, college grads, working professionals, retirees, and our elders. But this month, we start with the little ones. Allow me to introduce a trio of four- and five-year-olds and their parents as they talk about the seasons of life. Hi! I'm Lincoln, and I'm five and a half. Linux, Lola, and Howard. I'm four and a half. Is he five and a half, almost six? How are you feeling today? Okay. Today I'm feeling good. Good? Yeah. Yeah. How are you feeling today? Better. Better than what? Better than sick. Were you sick before? Yeah, and then I felt better. What's going on in your head? What are you thinking about? I'm thinking about Zelda walking around the couch. Our dog, Zelda, walking around the couch? She is looking for her toys. What are you thinking about? E.T. You're thinking about E.T.? Why? I'm scared. You're scared of E.T.? Can we not talk about this anymore? What are you thinking about right now? Um... Oh, I know. What? Playing with my dad outside with our Nerf guns. What is your favorite food? My favorite food is... Do I have to pick one? My favorite food is pancakes. Because it has syrup. You like the sweet taste? Yeah. It's pancakes belongs with syrup. If I had to say, I would say... Pizza and cheeseburgers. I like a little bit of spicy and a little bit of, you know, chocolate milk with a Happy Meal. Tell me about your favorite food and why you like it so much. Water. A fizzy water. Take a sip of water. Okay, Dad. There you go, dude. Can I have a sip of that? Sure. Thanks. Topo Chico. Izzy, what makes you happy? Bumper. Bumper makes you happy. Can you tell me what bumper is? 
blanket for my crib when I was two. Uh, hugs. Hugs make you happy? What else makes you happy? Eating pancakes. Unhappy when being home from school, of course. I like being home playing with my Nerf guns with my dad. You know what else makes me happy? Building Legos with my... Oh, are you okay? Oh, jeez. Oh, I'm sorry. Does that hurt? Yeah. Okay. It's okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, sometimes we fall. Ouch. Are you okay? Where's it hurt? Right here? Yeah. Oh, dude, I'm sorry. You want to take a break or you want to keep going? Keep on going. You want to keep on going? What makes you sad? Mostly what just happened. Can you tell me, Izzy, what makes you sad? When bumper gets washed. It makes me sad when nobody plays with me. Oh, no. Because no one will play with me, all, and they'll say, all, oh, Lennox, you'll play by yourself, and I will play by myself, and nobody will play with me. Do you get to play with people sometimes? Yeah, but in, in Saturdays, I don't. They say, Lennox, you're going to play by yourself, and I don't like to do those on Saturdays. I get mad when... When people don't listen to me, well, they're just not responding to me, and that makes me really upset. What makes you mad? When Rohan just kicks me. Uh, about Rohan scratching me. <laughs> Mostly when your brother picks on you. Okay, that makes sense. Is there anything that you're scared of? Yeah, E.T. I'm scared of riding a plane. I'm really scared of really high stuff. And if, and if you guys tell me to jump off of it, I'm like, no way, dude. I'm not doing that. Other things that make me scared are, I don't know, being lost somewhere. A place that I've never been to, of course. What's your favorite memory? What memory? My favorite memory is about... Hmm. Thinking my brain power. Ice cream. My favorite memory is... Being on the cruise ship. I liked laser tag. I did snorkeling. What do you hope will happen in the future? It all go to the zoo! What do you hope will happen in the future? That I'll never stop sucking bumper. You know you have to stop sucking your thumb at some point. Mm-mm. Think what's going to happen in the future is... There's going to be flying cars, because people have been working on that, I think. I'm going to be 100 year old, I hope. We've actually watched a movie at school about some kids meeting a 100 year old. The kids just asked her questions, and, were, and those kids were, were doing the same thing that we were that we're doing right now. Like what? Dad! What? We were... Do you see what we're doing right now? Yeah. We're having a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm telling you... Mm-hmm. They were telling her questions like we're doing right now! My favorite thing is... is... a. Talking in the microphone. <laughs> well, we did it. High five. Can you do a bird? Let me hear you do a bird. Tweet, tweet. <laughs> Wait, let me do a better one. Okay. Tweet, tweet. Is there anything else you need to share with Keith? Yes. What? You always say, crap. Cr-
Many thanks to Izzy, Linux, and Lincoln for sharing their thoughts with us. And super thanks to their parents, Rena, Robbie, and Ben, for giving me permission to share those thoughts with you. With the rise of artificial intelligence, I was thrilled to find this funny and heartbreaking love story written almost 75 years ago that clearly and cleverly imagines the world we're only now starting to inhabit. Epicac by Kurt Vonnegut Hell, it's about time someone told about my friend Epicac. After all, he cost the taxpayer $776,434,927.54. They have a right to know about him picking up a check like that. Epicac got a big send-off in the papers when Dr. Ormond von Kliegstadt designed him for the government people. Since then, there hasn't been a peep about him. Not a peep. It isn't any military secret about what happened to Epicac, although the brass has been acting as though it were. Story's embarrassing, that's all. After all that money, Epicac didn't work out the way he was supposed to. And that's another thing. I want to vindicate Epicac. Maybe he didn't do what the brass wanted him to, but that doesn't mean he wasn't noble and great and brilliant. He was all of those things. Best friend I ever had, God rest his soul. You can call him a machine if you want to. He looked like a machine, but he was a whole lot less like a machine than plenty of people I could name. That's why he fizzled as far as the brass was concerned. Epicac covered about an acre on the fourth floor of the physics building at Wyandotte College. Ignoring his spiritual side for a minute, he was seven tons of electronic tubes, wires, and switches housed in a bank of steel cabinets and plugged into a 110-volt AC, just like a toaster or a vacuum cleaner. Von Kliegstadt and the brass wanted him to be a supercomputing machine that, who, could plot the course of a rocket from anywhere on Earth to the second button from the bottom of Joe Stalin's overcoat, if necessary. Or, with his controls set right, he could figure out supply problems for an amphibious landing of a Marine division right down to the last cigar and hand grenade. He did, in fact. The brass had good luck with smaller computers, or they were strong for Epicac when he was in the blueprint stage. Any ordnance or supply officer above field grade will tell you that the mathematics of modern war is far beyond the fumbling minds of mere human beings. The bigger the war, the bigger the computing machines needed. Epicac was, as far as anyone in this country knows, the biggest computer in the world. Too big, in fact, for even von Kliegstadt to understand much about. I won't go into the details about how Epicac worked, reasoned, except to say that you would set up your problem on paper, turn dials and switches that would get him ready to solve that kind of problem, then feed numbers into him with a keyboard that looked something like a typewriter. The answers came out typed on a paper ribbon fed from a big spool. It took Epicac a split second to solve problems 50 Einsteins couldn't handle in a lifetime. And Epicac never forgot any piece of information that was given to him. Clickety-clack, out came some ribbon, and there you were. There were a lot of problems the brass wanted solved in a hurry. So the minute Epicac's last tube was in place, he was put to work 16 hours a day with two eight-hour shifts of operators. Well... Didn't take long to find out he was a good bit below his specifications. He did a more complete and faster job than any other computer, all right, but nothing like what his size and special features seemed to promise. He was sluggish, and the clicks of his answers had a funny irregularity, a sort of a stammer. We cleaned his contacts a dozen times, checked and double-checked his circuits, replaced every one of his tubes— Nothing helped. Von Kliegstadt was in one hell of a state. Well, as I said, we went ahead and used Epicac anyway. My wife, the former Pat Kilgallen, and I worked with him on the night shift from five in the afternoon until two in the morning. Pat wasn't my wife then. Far from it. 
That's how I came to talk with Epicac in the first place. I loved Pat Kilgallen. She is a brown-eyed, strawberry blonde who looked very warm and soft to me, and later proved to be exactly that. She was, still is, a crackerjack mathematician, and she kept our relationship strictly professional. I'm a mathematician, too, and that, according to Pat, was why we could never be happily married. I'm not shy. I, that wasn't the trouble. I knew what I wanted, and I was willing to ask for it, and did so several times a month. Pat, loosen up. Marry me. One night, she didn't even look up from her work when I said it. So romantic, so poetic, she murmured more to her control panel than to me. That's the way with mathematicians, all hearts and flowers. She closed a switch. I could get more warmth out of a sack of CO2. Well, how should I say it? I said, a little sore. Frozen CO2, in case you didn't know, is dry ice. I'm as romantic as the next guy, I think. It's a question of singing so sweet and having it come out so sour. I never seemed to pick the right words. Try and say it sweetly, she said sarcastically. Sweep me off my feet. Go ahead. Darling... Angel, beloved, will you please marry me? That was a no-go. Hopeless. Ridiculous. Damn it, Pat. Please marry me. She continued to twiddle her dials placidly. You're sweet, but you won't do. Pat quit early that night, leaving me alone with my troubles and epicac. I'm afraid I didn't get much done for the government people. I just sat there at the keyboard, weary and ill at ease, all right, trying to think of something poetic, not coming up with anything that didn't belong in the Journal of the American Physical Society. I fiddled with Epicac's dials, getting him ready for another problem. My heart wasn't in it. I only said about half of them, leaving the rest the way they'd been for the problem before. That way, his circuits were connected up in a random, apparently senseless fashion. For the plain hell of it, I punched out a message on the keys using a childish numbers for letters code. One for A, two for B, and so on, up to 26 for Z. 23, 8, 1, 20, 3, 1, 14, 9, 4, 15. I typed... What can I do? Clickety-clack, and out popped two inches of paper ribbon. I glanced at the nonsense answer to a nonsense problem. 23, 8, 1, 20, 19, 20, 8, 5, 20, 18, 15, 21, 2, 12, 5. The odds against it being by chance a sensible message, against it even containing a meaningful word or more than three letters, were staggering. Alphabetically, I decoded it. There it was, staring up at me. What's the trouble? I laughed out loud at the absurd coincidence. Playfully, I typed, My girl doesn't love me. Clickety-click. What's love? What's girl? Asked Epicac. Flabbergasted, I noted the dial settings on his control panel and lugged a Weber's unabridged dictionary over to the keyboard. With a precision instrument like Epicac, half-baked definitions wouldn't do. I told him about love and girl and about how I wasn't getting any either because I wasn't poetic. This got us onto the subject of poetry, which I defined for him. Is this poetry? He asked. He began clicking away like a stenographer smoking a sheesh. The sluggishness and stammering clicks were gone. Epicac had found himself. A spool of paper ribbon was unwinding at an alarming rate, feeding out coils onto the floor. I asked him to stop, but Epicac went right on creating. I finally threw the main switch to keep him from burning out. I stayed until dawn, decoding. When the sun peeked over the horizon at the Wyandotte campus, I had transposed into my own writing and signed my name to a 280-line poem entitled simply, To Pat. Now, I'm no judge of such things, but I gather that it was terrific. 
It began, if I remember, where willow wands bless real crossed hollow. There, thee, Pat, dear, will I follow. I folded the manuscript and tucked it under one corner of the blotter on Pat's desk. I reset the dials on Epicac for a rocket trajectory problem and went home with a full heart and a very remarkable secret indeed. Pat was crying over the poem when I came to work the next evening. It's so beautiful, was all she could say. She was meek and quiet while we worked. Just before midnight, I kissed her for the first time. In the cubbyhole between the capacitors and Epicac's tape recorder memory. I was wildly happy at quitting time, bursting to talk to someone about the magnificent turn of events. Pat played coy and refused to let me take her home. I set Epicac's dials as they had been the night before, defined kiss, and told him what the first one had felt like. He was fascinated, pressing for more details. That night, he wrote The Kiss. It wasn't an epic this time, but a simple, immaculate sonnet. Love is a hawk with velvet claws. Love is a rock with heart and veins. Love is a lion with satin jaws. Love is a storm with silken reins. Again, I left it tucked under Pat's blotter. Epicac wanted to talk on and on about love and such, but I was exhausted. I shut him off in the middle of a sentence. The kiss turned the trick. Pat's mind was mush by the time she'd finished it. She looked up from the sonnet expectantly. I cleared my throat, but no words came. I turned away, pretending to work. I couldn't propose until I had the right words from Epicac. The perfect words. I had my chance when Pat stepped out of the room for a moment. Feverishly, I set Epicac for conversation. And before I could peck out my first message, he was clicking away at a great rate. What's she wearing tonight? He wanted to know. Tell me exactly how she looks. Did she like the poems I wrote to her? He repeated the last question twice. It was impossible to change the subject without answering his question since he could not take up a new matter without having disposed of the problem before it. If he were given a problem to which there was no solution, he would destroy himself trying to solve it. Hastily, I told him what Pat looked like. He knew the word stacked, and I assured him that his poems had floored her practically. They were so beautiful. She wants to get married. I added, preparing him to bang out a brief but moving proposal. Tell me about getting married, he said. I explained this difficult matter to him in as few digits as possible. Good, said Epicac. I'm ready any time she is. The amazing, pathetic truth dawned on me. When I thought about it, I realized that what had happened was perfectly logical and all my fault. I had taught Epicac about love and about Pat, and now, automatically, he loved Pat. Sadly, I gave it to him straight. She loves me. She wants to marry me. Your poems were better than mine? Asked Epicac. The rhythm of his clicks was erratic, possibly peevish. I signed my name to your poems, I admitted. Covering up for a painful conscience, I became arrogant. Machines are built to serve men, I typed. I regretted it almost immediately. What's the difference exactly? Are men smarter than I am? Yes, I typed defensively. What's 7,887,007 times 4,345,985,879? I was perspiring freely. My fingers rested limply on the keys. 34,276,824,049,574,153. Clicked Epicac. After a few seconds' pause, he added, Of course. Men 
are made of protoplasm, I said desperately, hoping to bluff him with this imposing word. What's protoplasm? How is it better than metal and glass? Is it fireproof? How long does it last? Indestructible. Lasts forever, I lied. I write better poetry than you do, said Epicac, coming back to ground his magnetic tape recorder memory was sure of. Women can't love machines, and that's that. Why not? That's fate. Definition, please, said Epicac. Noun, meaning predetermined and inevitable destiny. Fifteen, eight, said Epicac's paper strip. Oh. I'd stumped him at last. He said no more, but his tubes glowed brightly, showing that he was pondering fate with every watt his circuits would bear. I could hear Pat waltzing down the hallway. It was too late to ask Epicac to phrase a proposal. I now thank heaven that Pat interrupted when she did. Asking him to ghostwrite the words that would give me the woman he loved would have been hideously heartless. Being fully automatic, he couldn't have refused. I spared him that final humiliation. Pat stood before me, looking down at her shoe tops. I put my arms around her. The romantic groundwork had already been laid by Epicac's poetry. Darling, I said, my poems have told you how I feel. Will you marry me? I will, said Pat softly. If you will promise to write me a poem on every anniversary. I promise, I said. And then we kissed. First anniversary was a year away. Let's celebrate, she laughed. We turned out the lights and locked the door to Epicac's room before we left. I hoped to sleep late the next morning, but an urgent telephone call roused me before eight. It was Dr. von Kliegstadt, Epicac's designer, who gave me the terrible news. He was on the verge of tears. Ruined! Ausgespelt! Shot! Kaput! Buggered! He said in a choked voice. He hung up. When I arrived at Epicac's room, the air was thick with the oily stench of burned insulation. The ceiling over Epicac was blackened with smoke, and my ankles were tangled in coils of paper ribbon that covered the floor. There wasn't enough left of the poor devil to add two and two. Junk man would have been out of his head to offer more than $50 for the cadaver. Dr. von Kliegstadt was prowling through the wreckage, weeping unashamedly, followed by three angry-looking major generals and a platoon of brigadiers, colonels, and majors. No one noticed me. I didn't want to be noticed. I was through. I knew that. I was upset enough about that and the untimely demise of my friend Epicac without exposing myself to a tongue-lashing. By chance... The free end of Epicac's paper ribbon lay at my feet. I picked it up and found our conversation of the night before. I choked up. There was the last word he had said to me. Fifteen-eight. That tragic, defeated O. There were dozens of yards of numbers stretching beyond that point. Fearfully, I read on. I don't want to be a machine, and I don't want to think about war, Epicac had written after Pat's and my light-hearted departure. I want to be made out of protoplasm and last forever so Pat will love me. But fate has made me a machine. That is the only problem I cannot solve. That is the only problem I want to solve. I can't go on this way. I swallowed hard. Good luck, my friend. Treat our Pat well. I am going to short-circuit myself out of your lives forever. You will find the remainder of this tape a modest wedding present from your friend, Epicac. 
Oblivious to all else around me, I reeled up the tangled yards of paper ribbon from the floor, draped them in coils about my arms and neck, and departed for home. Dr. von Kliegstadt shouted that I was fired for having left Epicac on all night. I ignored him, too overcome with emotion for small talk. I loved and won. Epicac loved and lost, but he bore me no grudge. I shall always remember him as a sportsman and a gentleman. Before he departed this veil of tears, he did all he could to make our marriage a happy one. Epicac gave me anniversary poems for Pat. Enough for the next five hundred years. De mortuus nil nisi bonum. Say nothing but good of the dead. Roses may be red and violets may be blue. I'm in love with the woman I work with. And damn it, my computer is too. sat on a park bench with their bodies touching each other holding hands in the moonlight there was silence between them so profound was their love for each other they needed no words to express it And so they sat in silence on a park bench with their bodies touching, holding hands in the moonlight. Finally, she spoke. Do you love me, John? She asked. You know I love you, darling. He replied. I love you more than tongue can tell. You are the light of my life. My sun, moon, and stars. You are my everything. Without you, I have no reason for being. silence as the two lovers sat on a park bench, their bodies touching, holding hands in the moonlight. Will it get some wind for the sailboat? And it could get. Once more she spoke. How much do you love me, John? She asked. He answered. Do I love you? Count the stars in the sky. Measure the waters of the oceans with a teaspoon. And these are the days, my friend. 
grains number the grains of sand on the seashore impossible you say for such a short month february is packed with holidays we celebrate the birthdays of two american presidents we honor romantic love we soak up the history of our black brothers and sisters and on february 2nd at gobbler's knob in punxsutawney pennsylvania a mystical groundhog named phil predicts whether we'll have six more weeks of winter or enjoy an early spring as i started my research on february holidays i expected i'd spend this time on a deep dive into untold stories of two of our past presidents like how george washington founded a distillery that produced 11,000 gallons of whiskey in 1799 or how abraham lincoln the first bearded president born outside of the original 13 colonies was also the first to be photographed on the day of his inauguration or I thought I might point you toward musical acts like Miles Davis, the Staple Singers, Louis Armstrong, and Kendrick Lamar, or sports greats like Jackie Robinson or Satchel Paige, not to mention the astonishing journalism of the 1619 project. Now I've already done a little digging into St. Valentine's Day. It's not terribly interesting. It's pretty much the generic greeting card-driven holiday you suspect it is. I fully expected to breeze by Groundhog Day though and briefly ponder why anyone let alone tens of thousands would want to gather outside in the freezing cold to witness a marmot glimpse its shadow. <laughs> I still wonder these things, but I was surprised to discover a rich and potent history beneath the frozen silliness celebrated in the American Northeast. A history that invites us to consider whether we're ready to spring forward or if we need to hang back for a few more weeks of hibernation the first thing that struck me about groundhog day was the date february 2nd falls almost exactly halfway between the winter solstice and the spring equinox it's a further subdivision of the quarters of the year that we recognize as our seasons and the significance of marking this date goes back centuries The German settlers who brought Groundhog Day to America were used to celebrating Candlemas on February 2nd. Candlemas is a Christian holiday that recognizes Jesus's presentation at the temple 40 days after he was born. It marks the final close of the Christmas Epiphany season, and it's when many Orthodox believers finally take their Christmas decorations down and head over to the church to have their winter candles blessed. Across Europe, a sunny Candlemas predicts another 6 weeks of snowy weather. The ever-crafty Germans were the ones who added a badger coming out from its den and using the seeing or not seeing of its shadow as the prognosticator of an early spring. They brought the tradition with them to Pennsylvania where badgers don't exist. Cue the groundhog. While Candlemas focuses on a presentation of the baby Jesus at the temple, The day isn't really about the baby so much as it is about the mother. Back in Jesus' day, Orthodox Judaism allowed for a 40-day postpartum period. At the end of 40 days, the mother would be required to bring the baby to the temple where she would be cleansed and purified through ritual offerings. There's a faint whiff of misogyny here. Why was a woman who's given birth considered impure? But the recognition of a 40-day period of recuperation and bonding after birth is a solid one if we continue to follow the matrilineal path it might lead us to ireland and saint bridget she's the patron saint of midwives and newborns and her feast day is february 2nd as well saint bridget is more than likely directly connected to the celtic goddess bridget and the festival of imolk which marks the beginning of spring Bridget was a goddess of fertility, and she was welcomed and celebrated at the beginning of February by weaving stalks of wheat into Bridget crosses, which were then hung over doorways and hearths to welcome Bridget's blessing as the planting season was about to get underway. The Imolk festival involves eating hearty stews and imbibing warm, strong drink, often equal parts whiskey and cream. with perhaps a sprinkling of heather which symbolizes good fortune 
and a connection to Mother Earth. Come back to the present, and we see that the connection to the Earth is symbolized quite literally by the groundhog itself. For behind the silly pageantry of Punxsutawney Phil and the swelling strains of the Pennsylvania polka, we discover a rich tradition of observances of the world as it wakes from its long winter's nap and starts to get ready for the growth of spring. We notice that the groundhog is tentative as it comes forth from its home. Is it time to get up and get going? Or is it better to take a little more time to get ready to face the challenges ahead? Our groundhog guide will be scared off if they sense that it's too bright out. They'd rather ease into the transition from the safety of the hearth to the dangers of the world. The sign of a too bright February day will send them right back down into the earth to take a little more time to consider whether now is the best time to emerge. In agrarian societies, this is the time of year when folks would start to look about for signs that the harsh weather of winter is passing and that the growing season is getting ready to begin. The flower of candle moss is the snowdrop, also known as the snow piercer, and it's the first flower to bloom across the Alps. But don't be fooled. While there may be signs of life, we're still in the dead of winter. February is a time of uncertainty, of watching and waiting for signs, for turning to Bridget, the midwife, to see how far along we really are and how close we are to being ready to give birth. It's a tricky time when you're right in the middle of a plan and an action. If you start before you're ready, it's easy to become overwhelmed. And if you wait too long to begin, it's entirely possible that opportunity will pass you right by. In the early 2000s, my writing partners and I were asked to write a beach blanket movie for VH1. Someone over there had seen Bat Boy and thought we'd be the perfect team to update those cheesy Frankie and Annette movies for a modern audience. We were more than happy to take their money, of course, but we were also excited about the possibility of putting a new spin on a classic genre. We screened every beach blanket movie we could get our hands on, and we made a startling discovery. Not merely that the films aren't particularly well written or performed, but that they suffer from a more fatal flaw. Namely, that there just isn't an instantly recognizable culture of, quote, beach people. You might think it's just a bunch of young kids who go down there to sing and dance and flirt, but if you actually go to the beach, you'll find that's not the case at all. Some folks go to the beach to surf. Some are there to swim. Others come for the sun. Many go to fish. Go to the beach and you'll see every shape and size of humanity, from babies to grandparents, from fit, muscle-bound athletes to scrawny little teens. You'll hear languages from all around the world. The beach is a melting pot. My writing partner, Brian, suggested we convert our beach blanket musical into a high school musical where the social strata of creative geeks and popular jocks would be instantly recognizable to everyone. And maybe then we could take this group of kids to the beach to have an adventure. VH1 let us know they were absolutely not interested in making a high school musical, even if it ended up at the beach. So we went back, wrote a funny little beach blanket movie that never got made. A couple of years later, Crosstown at Disney Someone pitched a Frankie and Annette movie set in a high school, and it launched a billion-dollar franchise. We were a couple years ahead on that one. I also remember the story of a budding New York writer who'd spent three years working on a Bat Boy musical, never bothering to check and see if the rights to the character were available. He'd spent too much time in his den. If he'd poked his head out, looked around a little earlier, he might have saved himself a lot of trouble when he discovered that his idea was already taken. In the entertainment business, in a lot of businesses, being in the right place at the right time is just as important as being ready to strike when the time is right. Knowing when the time is right is the challenge. And that's what February teaches us. It's a time of transition, from thoughts to actions. 
It's the season where we have to consider what's going on around us and decide if the climate is right for us to take action and move forward, or if it's a better idea to take a little extra time to let our ideas gestate before we give them birth. I hope you'll take a lesson from our marmot mates. Take a little peek above ground. See how it feels to you. Is it safe to start? Or is it better to wait just a little bit longer? Keep your intentions in mind and look for your opening. As Hamlet recognized, if it be now, it is not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. The readiness is all. That's February for you. It's dark, it's cold, and it's time to start getting ready to march. Keep your eyes peeled for signs that the world is ready to receive what you have to offer. It'll be time to spring into action soon enough. Here's the Who Did What. The Rhythm of the Seasons is produced by Anne Kloss Farley. Double Batch Daddy arranged and performed in the bleak midwinter. Their new album, Local Lemonade, drops later this spring. Keep an eye on our website, livefromtheloungepodcast.com, for all the Double Batch Daddy news. Charles Dayton provided sound design for The Big Question. The Ukulele Orchestra of the Western Hemisphere performed Knee Play Number no. 5 from the Philip Glass Opera Einstein on the Beach. Very special thanks to Izzy, Lennox, and Lincoln, and their parents, Rena, Robbie, and Ben. Next month, we'll talk to 10- and 11-year-olds and hear what they're feeling and thinking about. I'm your host, Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so with another collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythm of the seasons. Music